Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in. Today we continue with part five of a message series about the final days of Jesus' life. And my job this morning is to guide you through the fateful hours of that Thursday night all through what we now know as Good Friday. And the amount of things that take place in this short span of time is insane. And I think we're going to step into Jesus' perspective and get a powerful look at just what he went through, what he's done for you and for me. And along the way, we're going to learn some lessons for our own lives. So if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, we're going to kick things off in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. We'll also be looking at Luke's parallel account in Luke 22. These seven days began with Jesus making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey as people waved palm branches and welcomed him as king, a day that we call Palm Sunday, which happens to be today. On Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple by overturning the tables of the money changers and the merchants. On Tuesday, he went toe-to-toe with the religious elite, often embarrassing them in public and harshly condemning their hypocrisy. Wednesday, he ended his public ministry and delivered a private sermon to his disciples about future events, things that have still not occurred even today. On Thursday, he shared a last supper with his disciples. And it's amazing to think who sat at the table with him. Judas, the one who would betray him. Jesus truly is a friend of sinners. And then after they shared that meal, listen to what Jesus said. This is Matthew 26, verse 31. Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. What a statement. Jesus predicted that he would rise back from the grave. The resurrection should not have been a shocker. I don't think the disciples heard it. I think all they heard was, all of you are going to fall away. And so one of the most vocal disciples, Peter, was the first to speak up. Verse 33, Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Bit arrogant. I can't speak for the rest of these yahoos, but one thing I can say is you can count on me. 34, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He told Peter that he was going to quit on him. And the disciples, they maintained their steadfastness. We aren't going anywhere. Verse 36, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane was a peaceful garden just across the valley from Jerusalem on a mountain called the Mount of Olives. It was one of Jesus' favorite places to pray. I had the privilege of going there just a couple of months ago. I snapped this picture with my own camera. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the literal place where Jesus took his disciples to go and pray. Just to the right of this now stands a church that was kind of built over a a rock where they believe Jesus went off to pray by himself. 
fact, let's read about it, verse 36. Jesus said, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. In Jesus' darkest hour of need, he appealed to his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and implored them, will you pray for me? Do you have some people in your darkest hour who will pray for you? And then Jesus got vulnerable. He said he was under so much anguish. His words were, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. See, Jesus is fully God, but we also have to remember that he's fully human, and he's experiencing very human emotions. He was, he, he was feeling an all-encompassing grief. Anyone in here who's ever lost a loved one knows what this feeling is like. It's an unshakable mental, physical, and emotional agony. The difference is that you and I feel this after we experience hardship. Jesus was feeling it in anticipation of hardship. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that he was under such duress that the sweat was pouring from his head like blood falls out of a wound. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. This is maybe the most intimate portrayal we have in scripture of Jesus in his humanity. He's asking God for something very profound. He said, will this cup pass from me? What was the cup he was referring to? It's the cup of God's wrath, that God is going to punish sin. And Jesus was feeling this cup nearing his mouth. And he, and he asked God, is there another way? Is there a way for this cup to pass by me where I could still atone for the sins of the world without the suffering? And friends, if that cup ever came anywhere near any of our lips, we would turn and run the other way. Jesus stepped up, verse 39, yet not as I will, but as you will. This was no small moment. This was the moment that Jesus made his resolution, no matter what comes ahead, I'm going to follow your plan for my life, Father. A powerful confession. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Anyone who's ever been betrayed can be assured Jesus knows exactly how you feel. One of his own disciples secretly went behind the scenes, went to Jesus' enemies, and sold Jesus out for a measly price of 30 pieces of silver. It's hard to equate that in today's economy. Uh, it's, a, it's somewhere on the high end, maybe $3,000. On the low end, 90 bucks. How much is a life worth to you. And then he came and he kissed him. I think the worst kind of backstabbing is the kind that's done with a smile. Judas walks up to Jesus as if nothing's wrong. Greetings, rabbi. And he betrayed him. And with this, a, a detachment of, 
of thugs with clubs and swords arrested Jesus. Verse 57, those who had arrested him took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So they bound Jesus and marched him back across the valley, back into Jerusalem to the house of the high priest. When I was in Israel, I got to visit this house. I, I took this photo, and like many sites, a, a church is built over it. So that building right there with the blue roof, that stands above the home of Caiaphas. And uh, in this home is where Jesus was brought. Now, there's a, a significant time gap between the arrest of Jesus and his early morning trial. And so the prevailing belief is that Jesus was placed in a holding cell. Well, underneath the home of Caiaphas is this massive cistern. You see it right there. Prisoners were lowered through the hole by a rope, a treatment that was shown to the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. And so I went into the bottom of the cistern, and at the bottom is an open Bible, open to Psalm 88. I want to read to you some of these words of Psalm 88, and perhaps these were prophetic of the moment Jesus was experiencing. Imagine Jesus at the bottom of this cistern when you hear these words. Verse 3, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit, quite literally. I am a man who has no strength, verse 16. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My only companion, darkness. This was a road Jesus truly had to walk alone. And eventually Jesus would be brought back up so that he could face trial with Caiaphas. But while all of this was taking place, an interesting scene unfolded outside. This is Luke's gospel, Luke 22, verse 54. Then seizing him, they led Jesus away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Just outside the house of Caiaphas is this courtyard. It's been refinished for today, but you can get an idea of the place where Peter might have been sitting as he was subtly tracking Jesus' steps, trying to keep a low profile, warming himself by the fire in those early watches of the night. And somebody called him out. That's one of Jesus' disciples, a charge he vehemently denied. And over the course of the next hour, two other people would make similar accusations, and both of them were met with angry denials from Peter. Then this happened, verse 60. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. At that courtyard is this statue now standing there that commemorates this moment. You see the three different people there representing the three denials of Peter with the rooster up above. What Jesus said would happen happened exactly how he said it would. And Peter failed Jesus and he ran away with tears streaming down his cheeks. And then Jesus was brought to trial. But this was not a courtroom interested in justice. It was a total joke. 
Because we learned from earlier in Matthew's gospel that the high priest Caiaphas already determined Jesus had to die, which means that the verdict was made before the trial ever began. And so to manufacture the results they wanted, they produced false witnesses against Jesus, many of whom couldn't get their stories straight, the details weren't right, they were contradicting each other. It wasn't until Jesus agreed with their assessment that he was the Messiah that they finally said, guilty, and pronounced the death penalty. Back to Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27. Early in the morning... All the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So as the sun dawned on Friday morning, Jesus was presented before the governor at his place of residence because Pilate was the only one who had the legal authority to carry out an execution. So what happened to the disciples? We, we learned about what happened to Peter What about Judas? The next verse, verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. What a tragic end. And anyone in here who's ever been touched by suicide knows how painful this kind of end is. If Judas could have just hung on. I mean, this was somebody who walked with Jesus, somebody who sat under his teaching, somebody who watched Jesus perform miracles. And yet, instead of bringing his guilt to Jesus, he carried himself and ended his own life. And friends, when the darkest hour hits, and it seems like there's no chance for a positive outcome, I'm standing before you this morning to say, give Jesus a chance. He has the habit of bringing a sequel out of a story that looks like it just ended. Unfortunately, (laughs) Judas didn't give him that privilege, and now it was too late. Back to Luke, Luke 23.1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Pilate spent about five minutes with Jesus and couldn't believe that people were calling for the death penalty. He he couldn't find any charges against him. And so he he tried to appeal to the crowd, verse 5, but they insisted, he stirs up all the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked the man if he was Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Pilate didn't want to have to deal with Jesus. So he leaned on a technicality. Oh, wait, he's from the country up in Galilee? Well, that's not my territory. Send him off to Herod. He's Herod's problem now. Herod was Herod Antipas, the third son of Herod the Great, the one who rebuilt the temple in Jesus' day. The same Herod the Great who murdered children the day Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So Herod Antipas doesn't exactly come from a great legacy. This is what happened when Jesus arrived. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some sign of sort. Herod was exciting. This This is great. 
Jesus the magician is here. Hey, show me a trick. Here's a cup of water. Can you turn it into wine? Jesus was probably bruised and bloodied from the the beating the religious leaders gave him. Probably had a black eye, a fat lip. Herod didn't care. He just wanted a show. Jesus stood there and refused to give him anything. Verse 11. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. So Jesus shows back up at Pilate's house, and they, they present him. Pilate probably started laughing. Oh, man, look at that. They dressed him like a king. Hey, this Herod guy, he's my kind of guy. He's funnier than I realized. Friends, listen. People who hate Jesus love each other. And that day they became buddies. So Jesus, already unjustly arrested, physically abused, brought into a court that had no interest in justice, had lies brought up about him, was locked away, was brought before Pilate, paraded before Herod. Now he's shipped back to Pilate, and it's not even eight in the morning yet. Verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Can you ever imagine a circumstance in which somebody appealed to the highest courts of the land for the death penalty, and not only did they say, we're not going to carry out the death penalty, but we can't even find a single charge. It's unheard of. So Pilate's compromise was, look, guys, let me rough him up a bit, and then we'll let him go, and then everyone can be happy. We'll call it a day. The people weren't having it. Verse 18, but the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Of course they wanted Barabbas. He looked more like the Messiah they wanted. They needed a Messiah who would take on Rome. At least Barabbas did something. This Jesus won't fight. Verse 23, with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will, like tossing a piece of meat to a bunch of hungry lions, Pilate cowardly condemned Jesus to death by crucifixion. And at this point, they would have stripped Jesus. He would have been severely flogged. They put a crown of thorns and jammed it down into his scalp. And then on top of all of this and being sleep depraved, Jesus was then forced to haul a cross through the narrow streets of Jerusalem to the site of his own crucifixion. I was just there not long ago, and I was walking those streets. I, I took a little video of it just to kind of show this is the road Jesus walked. And as I was walking this, I got winded because this was just a gradual incline. And I wasn't carrying anything. I can't imagine Jesus trying to pull across through this place, flanked on every side by people screaming in his face, mocking him, laughing at him, 
spitting on him. This is what Jesus did for you and I. He endured all of this, carrying his own cross to the place of his death. Let's go back to Luke's gospel in Luke 23, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Finally, they arrived at a place called Golgotha. They called it the place of the skull. Here's what it looks like today. You could see why they would call it the skull. Just off to the right, the rock formation quite literally looks like a skull. Today, it edges up against a Palestinian bus station. And as I stood there in this place, the thought occurred to me, how many people go about their daily business here at Golgotha having no idea the Savior of the world was crucified in this very location? Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This is a vivid picture of an unrepentant life. This hardened criminal used some of his dying breaths to spew mockery at Jesus, saying, save yourself and us, which was a request Jesus could not meet. Because in order to save us, he had to die. It couldn't be both. It was one or, or, or the other. Aren't you glad Jesus chose not to save himself? Verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly for what we're getting, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. One of Jesus' final acts was saving another person from the penalty of their sins. And shortly after this, Jesus breathed his last breath, and he died. The sky went dark. The earth quaked in that region. And in the temple, a curtain was torn, representing the end of people needing to sacrifice animals to come to God because through Jesus, the perfect sacrifice was killed. Jesus' crucifixion began at 9 in the morning, the exact hour at the Passover festival when you sacrifice the lamb. And he died at 3 o'clock, six hours later. This is how much Jesus loves you and I. He was willing to endure all of this. So when we look back on the details of that fateful day, what can we draw out of it that we could apply to this day? The question we've been posing throughout this message series is, if you knew you had seven days left to live, how would you spend that time? I'm guessing that most of us, myself included, would spend that time somewhat selfishly. We want to go on vacations and take adventures and be with the people that we love. Jesus, on the other hand, didn't spend his final hours living for himself, but giving of himself. Jesus was and is the ultimate example of selflessness. 
And this was evident when he surrendered to the will of the Father and effectively died to his own plans. And this is what Jesus wants for all who follow him too, for us to die to ourselves so that Jesus can live in us. How do you do that? How do you die to yourself? How do you not be selfish? How do you not give in to your own sinful instincts? How do we surrender our lives to God and say, no matter what, I'm following after you, no matter what comes my way? Well, based on these passages of Scripture, I I came up with a couple of ways in which we could learn how to die to ourselves. So if you're taking notes, jot this down. Here's the first one. Number one, release control. This is so hard for so many of us, isn't it? Because we want to take control of the circumstances of our lives, but central to dying to ourselves is saying, Jesus, I'm giving this to you. That was in living color in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's return to that moment. Matthew 26, verse 37. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If Jesus was living for himself, he would have said to the father, I'm out. I quit. Find somebody else. I can't do this anymore. Or he would have become the counselor. Uh, Okay, I got an idea. This is how it can work. How about this? How about I get in front of all of my enemies and then you just make me explode? I I can still pay for the sins of the world, uh, but but I'll die instantaneously without any pain. Win-win. That's actually how you and I deal with God. We counsel him first on what the plan should be, and when he doesn't take our plan, we quit. And understand, Jesus, when he was praying this, he had options. He could have taken control. Remember, he hadn't been arrested yet. The betrayer hadn't showed up yet. Jesus could have split under the cover of night. But there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus released control. Compare this to a different garden, the Garden of Eden. God expressly commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what did Adam and Eve do? They took control for themselves. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the moment sin entered into the picture. And what does it say they did with the fruit? Well, it looks good to eat. I'm sure it tastes good to eat. And if I eat this, it'll make me smarter. It's all about me, my desires, what I want. They took control, and they lived for themselves, which is actually how our world still operates. Our culture today values this kind of living. Follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. 
That's the, that's the message of our culture. And this message was certainly the, the tone of the wildly popular book called Untamed. I don't know if you've heard about this book. It was on the New York Times bestseller, sold millions of copies. It was written by an author by the name of Glennon Doyle. And she got her start. She started to become famous as a Christian blogger, which led many to believe that Untamed is a Christian book. Here's the basic premise, that all women are like these wild animals that have been tamed They've given up their lives for the sake of children or for the sake of their spouse or, or, or through some oppression from culture, and, and women need to be unleashed, untamed. And the author unfairly characterizes every woman as shy and in need of adventure and insecure, and so she needs to be let out of her cage. Well, Glennon Doyle practiced what she preached. One day when she was on a book tour, she met a professional female soccer player, and the two fell in love. So Glennon Doyle decided to get untamed and, and chase her own heart. So she walked out on her family, divorced her husband of 14 years, walked out of the home where her three children lived, and entered into a same-sex relationship with this female soccer player. I'm going to read one excerpt from her book. It's brief, but it's so telling. This is what Glennon Doyle writes. Maybe Eve was never meant to be our warning. Maybe she was meant to be our model. Own your wanting. Eat the apple. It's all about what makes you happy. Some of the worst advice you'll ever get in life is follow your heart. Friends, if I followed my heart, I'd be dead because the things that I desire are not good for me. This message of untamed is the exact opposite of the message of Jesus. Long before he ever went to Golgotha, Jesus said this, Luke 9, 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus did the very thing he commands us to do. And central to being a disciple of Jesus is going through the daily process of dying to yourself and not following your heart, not just doing what makes you happy, but laying it before the Lord and saying, here you go, God. This is what Jesus did in the garden. It's a good pattern for us to follow. Remember, first he made his request. Can this cup pass from me? And so when you pray, make your request known to God. God, this is the thing I'm desiring right now. But then what did Jesus do? He, he released control, and you and I can do the same thing. God, I've given you my request, but if this is not what you want for my life, then would you mold me and shape me so that I could align with what you believe is best for my life? That's what Jesus calls us to, not this garbage message of untamed and other voices in our culture that are constantly telling us, live for yourselves. Take control of your life. Let's follow what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, not what happened in the Garden of Eden. The first Adam said, my will be done. The second Adam said, thy will be done. Let's follow after him. Number one, how to die to yourself? Release control. Number two, restrain yourself. What is restraint? It's, 
It's measures that you put in your life, boundaries, safeguards to prevent you from derailing what God has in store for you. How many of us have invited trouble into our lives because we just couldn't restrain ourselves? And yet Jesus, under the most intense and extreme circumstances, never came unglued never got baited, never said a wrong word, never lost it. Here's just a quick flyover of some of these examples. When he was betrayed by Judas, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. When he was on trial before Caiaphas, Jesus remained silent. When he was on trial before Herod, Jesus gave him no answer. When he was on trial before Pilate, Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge. And this may be the most unthinkable of all of them. When he was arrested, Peter pulled out his sword and was ready to fight. But listen to what Jesus said. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was like 5,000 soldiers. So do the math. Jesus said, hey, at any moment I could snap my fingers and 60,000 angels would come in here and take care of business. But he chose not to. He practiced restraint. This is an affirmation to me of why I wasn't picked to be the savior of the world. <laughs> if I had someone betray me, I would want to retaliate as much as possible. If somebody made false accusations about me, I'd want to stand on the rooftop and shout my side of the story. If my life was on the line, I would do what it took to stay alive. And if I had at my disposal the power of 60,000 angels, there wouldn't be a single car on the highway but my own. <laughs> I'd head straight to L.A. You're gone, you're gone, you're gone, and you'd all do the same thing. But what did Jesus do? He practiced restraint. And that's something that followers of Jesus need to do as well. How do you practice restraint? Well, here's a couple of ideas. Number one, get out of the situation. Don't get into the car. Don't go to their house. Don't go to the place where your ex works. Do not press send. You wrote that message when you were angry. In a moment of weakness, get your little finger away from the arrow button. Don't answer the phone. Don't have anything to do with that person. And pray your socks off. God, help me to restrain myself. Friends, there's a time when you have to confront things. And there's a time where you have to step into some hard situations, and you have to have some hard conversations. But if that situation is dangerous, unhealthy, or you are in a position of weakness, get out of there. And how can you do this? How is this possible? Listen to what the Apostle Paul said, 2 Timothy 1.7. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Which means if you've trusted Jesus by faith, the very Spirit of God is in you and will give you the power to say no, to do the most loving thing, and to restrain yourself. You are not powerless. And when we look at how Jesus handled this situation, we ought to learn from his example. 
critical to dying to ourselves is not giving in to every whim. I mean, look at the other people in the story who had no restraint. The, the religious leaders, totally emotional, they killed the Son of God. Peter couldn't stand up to a little girl, gave in, had no restraint. He ran away crying. Judas had no restraint, ended up taking his own life. Pilate, despite his wife begging him not to do anything to Jesus, could not have any restraint, and he just gave in. And yet here is Jesus, the Son of God, unflinching, stayed committed to the plan of the Father. And friends, I don't know about you, but I'm willing to guess most of us in the room and watching online can't think of a single time in which we regretted showing restraint. But I bet we could think of a whole lot of other times where we wish we did. It is possible. If you're going to die to yourself, you've got to practice restraint. Number one, release control. Number two, restrain yourself. Here's the third one. Repent of sins. What does repent mean? Repent means to, to experience remorse so deeply that you make changes. It comes from the Latin word penitent. So repenting of sins is when you feel conviction over something, and so you run to Jesus asking him to change you, and then you show through your behavior that a change is in fact taking place. And in this narrative, we saw two examples of this, a bad example and a good example. Let's start first with the bad. Matthew 27, 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? He replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Started okay. Says he was seized with remorse. But repenting of sins is more than just feeling bad. Judas should have run to Jesus, but who did he run to? The chief priests to return the money. They couldn't deal with his guilt, and you saw how they treated him. He should have taken that guilt to Jesus. And then it didn't show a changed life through his behavior. He killed himself. A better example of repenting were the criminals on the cross. One mocked Jesus, the other defended him. Luke 23, 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. First thing he did was admitted his own sins. That's critical to repenting. What did he say? We are getting what our deeds deserve. Then he ran to Jesus. He believed in faith. Jesus was the only one who could save him. And it showed through his behavior, not only in defending Jesus, but acknowledging Jesus as king over his life. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Now, he didn't have the benefit of time to show that there's a change in his life, but Jesus knew his heart, which is why Jesus said, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Even as Jesus himself was dying, he made room for one more. It's never too late to repent. It's never too late to turn to Jesus, even on your deathbed. Friends, when Jesus died, he paid for the sins of the world. 
The battle was finished on Golgotha, but it was won in Gethsemane when Jesus submitted to the Father and said, your will be done. This occurred on the Mount of Olives. Olive is what you need to make olive oil. And in ancient times, olive oil was used for a variety of things. We just think of it with cooking. But back then, olive oil was used to fuel lamps. It was used to heal wounds. It was used to anoint kings. They poured over their head. And the way that olive oil is made is first the, the olive is put in this, this wicker-type basket, and it's crushed. And the oil drips down into a stone receptacle below. And then hot water is poured on the basket to wash away the dredges of pulp. And then when all the oil drips down, it eventually separates from the water, which sounds a whole lot like what Jesus did for us. Just like an olive is crushed, Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. And just like the hot water was poured to cleanse out all the dregs, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. And just like the oil separates from the water, through faith in Jesus, our sins are separated from us. Olive oil was used to fuel lamps. Jesus is the light of the world, and he could light up the darkness in your heart. Olive oil was used to heal wounds. The blood of Jesus healed our deepest wound, the penalty of sin. Olive oil was used to anoint kings. Jesus is the king of kings, and he's inviting all of us into his kingdom. And just like that criminal on the cross cried out to Jesus, so too you can cry out to Jesus, and he will save you. My question for you is, have you ever cried out to Jesus? I'm not just talking about feeling bad or believing that Jesus existed, but truly surrendering your life to him. Maybe even now you feel God tugging on your heart to give him your life. And if that's the case, I want to lead you in a prayer right now that you could repeat after me in the silence of your own heart. I'll give you the words, but you've got to pray them in faith. So if you're ready to invite Christ into your life right now, I want to ask everybody, bow your heads, close your eyes online, you too, and just silently pray this right back to him. Jesus, I give you my life. Cry that right up to heaven. Jesus, I give you my life. I admit I've sinned against you. But I believe in faith you died in my place. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for a new heart so I could die to myself and live for you. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, then God is in you and he's going to work in you and we want to help you with this journey. On the programs that you got, there's a bottom, a box at the bottom that says, I said yes to Jesus. I want to encourage you to fill that out and tear off this little perforated card and when the offering bags come by in a minute, you could just drop that in and one of our staff members will follow up with you to help you get started with this new decision. Maybe you've already accepted Christ into your life by faith, but you want to grow. You want to take your next step. Here's how to do that. Grab your phone and text the word NEXT to 909-281-7797. 
One of our staff people will exchange a few messages with you and help customize your next steps. Maybe it's serving or joining a small group. Maybe you just need somebody to talk to or some assistance. Text NEXT to 909-281-7797. Or you can stop by the Next Step table before you leave. Friends, next week is Easter Sunday. Culturally speaking, this is a time where people are much more open to church, which means if there's somebody in your life that you invite with you to church, there's a good chance they're going to say yes. Why don't you invite them with you to sunrise next week to find out what happens after Jesus died. Until then, let's remember that our Savior was the ultimate example of selflessness when he surrendered his will to Jesus. And we ought to do the same. So let's release control. Let's restrain ourselves and let's repent of our sins. This is the model Jesus gave not living for ourselves, but dying to ourselves. So let's honor him by doing the same. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for loving the world so much that you would send your one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. I pray for anyone in here who has not turned their life to you, that they would not leave this place without making the most important decision of their lives. For the rest of us, God, will you give us what we need to die to ourselves? It's so hard. But thank you for not leaving us powerless and sending your spirit to help us. And as we get ready to give these tithes and offerings to you, I pray that you would use these financial gifts to multiply your work across this world. We thank you and we praise you and we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. And if you believe in your heart, then let the church say amen. amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I want to encourage you to not just stop here. Maybe you sense God is speaking to you today and wanting you to take that next step. So here's two ways you can do just that. The first is text the word next to the number 909-281-7797. That's 909-281-7797. You'll receive a message back with some ways to help you grow. That may mean joining a small group or finding a place to serve or just talking with someone one-to-one -one about your faith. You can also visit the notes for this podcast and follow the links provided. And if you're within driving distance of one of our four physical locations in Banning, Ontario, Rialto, or Victorville, we'd love for you to stop by sometime and give us a chance to meet you personally. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. God bless.